I like to talk about possibility a lot because people say, well, that's not probable. It may not be probable, but is it possible? Under certain circumstances, could this reasonably happen? Hi, I am Mike Stopforth, and this is the 10th episode of the One-Eyed Man podcast. It's not a huge milestone, but it's a, it's a little one that means a little bit to me. And today's show will be just a little bit different. Today, I'm speaking to my first truly international guest, Samantha Rocky, who I spoke to in episode three about a new brand of leadership, is based in the UK, but is definitely still a Benoni and Johannesburg uh, girl at heart. I was introduced to today's guest, Andrew Blades, who's based out of Melbourne, Australia, through local futurist and trend analyst, Bronwyn Williams. He came with such a glowing review, and that stands for, counts for a lot, coming from someone like Bronwyn. And what a fascinating discussion it was. Andrew has worked in the military. He's worked in the private sector and in the public sector. He holds four master's degrees, multiple certifications, and describes himself as an uncertainty navigator, a lifelong learner, and a polymath. We spoke about a whole bunch of things, not limited to business, but we spoke largely about complexity and why it's absolutely essential for modern leaders to develop the capacity to think outside of their comfort zones. You're going to enjoy this one. As they say in Australia, it's an absolute ripper. Enjoy the show. So, Andrew Blades, thank you so much for taking time today to chat to me about, I imagine, what will be an extraordinarily wide-ranging bunch of topics. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Mike. I appreciate it. Um, I want to start very quickly right at the beginning of your career, if that's okay. You you joined the Australian Air Force. Was that straight out of your postgraduate studies? That was straight out of my undergraduate degree. So I'd basically gone from school to university and from university straight into the Air Force. And you worked in intelligence, is that correct? That's correct, yes. Okay, so in your your profile, it speaks about your uh, focus on high-impact low probability occurrences this was your this was your primary area of interest and and i guess research and and study what what is a high impact low probability moment and why did you focus on that area for me that's probably the most interesting area of things that we we deal with there's there's a lot of things that we deal with day in day out but the things that have always really interested me are those things that are almost world changing events um yeah. And in some ways, my interest in this started when I watched a movie on Krakatoa, the, the earth, the okay. uh, volcano up near uh, Indonesia when I was a small child. And I thought, you know, what an incredible, what an incredible thing to happen that it, it just, this massive explosion and what it, what it caused. And uh, I'd also been to see the Pompeii exhibition when it had been touring the world. And I had this idea about these single events that could just totally change lives. Uh, and not just the life yes. of one or two people, but the change change the life of a community, a state, and and ultimately in some cases a country. And I, I found that fascinating in that it certainly built my area of interest in history, and it also built a strong area of interest in politics and the way people make decisions and the way those decisions are based on our understanding of not only now but what may or may not happen in the future. 
So in the Defence Force context was a high impact, low probability occurrence and international conflict or what, what constituted, what were some of the examples of things that you were planning for or anticipating? So I'll step that back to my last semester at university, which was uh, the first half of 1990. Uh, and yeah. I was doing a unit in European politics. And as we entered the last week prior to the exams, the lecturer said to us, look, there's been so much churn in what's happened in European politics. The questions that you're going to answer in that exam, just tell me what month and year you're referring to because you'll probably be right. Uh, and we'd <laughs> seen this major flip of how Europe was functioning. I joined yes, the Air Force yes. at about the same time that the first Gulf War kicked off. So I'd come out mm. of my basic training as an officer to, to be involved in planning for those types of things as a, as a very junior officer. And that was really the first eye-opener for me about how much involvement, how much planning there is. And the old saying, if you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, partly because the enemy gets a vote, and this constant issue of I'm planning for things with no idea of what's going to happen next. I, I can plan a first-order effect, but thinking about what second and third-order effects are going to be becomes extremely difficult when you're dealing with a complex adaptive system. I also got involved mm -hmm. with some uh, work around responding to natural disasters, and I later went, went on to spend a lot more time in that space. But again, a yeah. single event can upset um, a small country in the Pacific, and you can see a, a response to that. But then the spin-off for that effect for that as to the aid that's given and how that may drive who's giving aid under what conditions and where they get economic buy-in from that uh, and, and how that starts to flow out. So that, that initial ripple that starts, trying to identify what the multiple flow-on effects for that, well, I've, I just found fascinating and always have. And that's been a... A, a kind of common denominator, golden thread throughout your career is this interest in uncertainty and the, the phrase you used earlier on, complex adaptive systems. How do you explain what a complex adaptive system is or, or uncertainty thinking or principles to somebody who's very new to that space? It's a re really interestingly challenging question. I think the first thing that we have a, a confusion between what's complicated and what's complex. And I would say okay. my, my observation over the last 20 years is we've become very lax in the way we use language. So a car mm. is complicated. It's a series of systems, yes. but a mechanic or an engineer can have a look at it and say, if this has happened, that's likely to happen and it'll be consistent. So when you cut the brake, brake line, the brakes will fail and they'll always fail. In a yes. complex system, a sort of if if this then that linear type yep. of yeah on off type of system. Yeah, and it's it, it is a linear system. So, and a lot of our school systems train people to think in if this then that and it'll flow on. When yes. you start looking yes. at that complex space, you're then saying, well, I did this today and I, I used very little pressure and I got a huge result. And the next day I do exactly the same thing under what seemed to be the same conditions and I get a totally different result. So it's, it's yes. you don't have that linearity to it. We still think in terms of cause and effect, which yes. you know, it works in a lot of systems, but it doesn't work in the complex system where often you've got one cause which then becomes an effect and that effect becomes another cause, but then there's something else from outside your system that's influencing that and 
it's tracking how all those variables start to come together. And I often speaking in terms of modulation rather than a driver, it influences the behavior of something, but it may not cause it. So you, you work with a lot of business leaders on this topic. Do you, do you consider businesses to be complex adaptive systems? Almost anything where I'm working with humans is a complex adaptive system because they'll, <laughs> they'll change their behavior and they'll identify, well, if this is happening, I can either game that system or I've learned a set of rules that generally work and I'll try and move around that. And yes. I've spent a lot of time in the security space as well. So you, you put a lock on a door and then people find a way of picking the lock. So you make the yes. lock harder to pick so they come up with a different system or well, they might knock the door yes. in. So I use a bigger door and it's this constant action reaction the whole way through. Yes. And then you'll yes. get to a point that some people say, it's just too much effort for me. I'll go and find an easier target. Or leave the door open and then nobody wants to break in. And that's, that's the other option. Yeah. So are, are we inherently complex beings because of the way we think? You know, our brains are, are not linear computers. They, they are networks, right? They, they, there's multiple systems in play at once, and we are seldom aware of how those processes are working together to help us make decisions. But is that why when we get together in communities and in businesses and in societies, those groups are inherently complex as well? That's certainly part of it. You only have to change small variables for a human to start changing their behavior. It's turn the heating up in the room so the room becomes uncomfortable. Uh, the amount of time yes. since they've had a meal and their sugar levels, the types of people that are in the room. We, we all have hot spots and things that you know really drive us and motivate us or upset us. And people can say a simple comment in a meeting and really put somebody offside and think, I'm, I'm not really sure of what I've just done there. Yes. And it's, it's, it's really coming to that understanding of how various people think and act. And a lot of the research we've done in the past has been, well, we put somebody in a lab and we remove them from the social setting and, oh, look how they react. But you then put them into a social setting and you've got all these yes. other dynamics. And most of us have different faces for different occasions. So we'll act differently oh, when yeah. we're with our friends and our family to when we're with work colleagues you react to different situations in different ways. You might be far more restrained when you're in front of your boss, far less restrained when you're in front of your peers, different face when you're dealing with employees, and all of that's being juggled all the time. I think the other thing is we've still got the brains basically we had of a 1,000 years ago, and a 1,000 years ago we didn't live in cities with 5, 6, 10, 20 million people. We lived in very small groups and that's what we've evolved to deal with, with a small number of social contacts. We sort of know the vibe of those people. And then you suddenly find yourself in a big city and you don't know the vibes of all those people. And my observation is when you move from one culture to another, hmm. there's a different set of social cues. Yeah. And it's getting to grips with what those social cues are. Now, that, that's probably quite marked if you say an Australian going to China for a holiday will see a different set of social cues. But those social sure. cues also come into play when you move from one job to another within the same organization or within separate organizations. Oh, absolutely. So when you meet with 
business leaders, or I mean, I know during the course of your career, you've done a lot of um, leadership coaching, training, facilitation work. When you meet with leaders for the first time who perhaps are limited, I'm trying to be as diplomatic as I can be here, limited in their understanding of complexity and the importance of understanding complexity and maybe more interested in a dictatorial or authoritarian way of getting things done in their organizations. How do you help them start a journey towards thinking about complexity as being important at all? What is the commercial viability of applying your mind to what is quite an exhausting exercise often uh, of, you know, of, of immersing yourself in, in complexity and, and, and the thinking around it? So I, I think many business leaders today have come through what I would say is a fairly standard business education process where they've done an undergraduate degree, where they've done an MBA and they've been taught models and a lot of those models involve arrows. A happens, then yes. B will happen, then C will happen, then D will happen and, and that's what they're used to. Yes. Uh, we now talk a lot about the volatile, uh, uncertain, complex, ambiguous or the, the, the VUCA or, or VUCA world depending on how you want to pronounce it. Yeah. And they talk about, oh, we're all about complexity, but then they'll drag out a model that's been used for the last 30 years and, and may or may not be the best model. I, th I think one of the things I like to do in this space is to use futures thinking and to use some scenarios and say, all right, let's imagine what this would be like in 20 years' time. Sure. One of the things that does is it shifts them from I'm making decisions now and if it goes wrong next week, people will think I'm an idiot to – in 20 years' time, I won't be here and it's sort of we're, we're playing with – I talk about we're, we're playing in a sandbox and this yeah. is the space that we're using and we're stepping out of the work environment to think about things in a very free-thinking space. Most executives, most leaders are happy to move into that space and it's then yes. how do you make decisions about these types of things. Imagine what this is going to be with artificial intelligence. And yes. when you when you said that ten years ago, you got a very different response to what you get now. Or if, if you think about COVID nineteen, imagine what this would be like as a pandemic. Having they've all just seen Contagion or a, or a similar movie, and it, it moves them into a different space. It moves them into a different way of thinking. And I, th I think a very powerful question for people. But but this is the way it's always been. This is the way it's going to be. For me, a very mm. powerful question is it's a simple question of. What would have to change for this no longer to be the case? Mm. What would have to change for your world not to be as it is now? Yeah. What would have to be true for you to completely rethink this assumption? Exactly. And I, I like to talk about possibility a lot because people say, well, that's not probable. It may not be probable, but is it possible? Under certain circumstances, could this reasonably happen? Yes. And it forces them yeah. to think a bit more and expand a bit more. And I like to use the word imagine because it gives them permission to go outside the box. Yes, yes. I was speaking to somebody uh, just uh, yesterday who was talking about the, the idea of suppose, supposing, <laughs> which conjures up interesting imagery. So the question I want to ask then is you did mention – COVID-19, and we are recording this in the midst of lockdowns in our respective states, and, and it is top of mind for every reasonable human being on the planet right now. But most of the time when you're talking to business executives, 
and you presented as an example the disruptive macro force of artificial intelligence as an example early on maybe um, progressive climate change or globalization or inequality might be other examples of big global macro trends that we are all aware of have all read about are all um, to a greater or lesser degree able to articulate some thinking or some th uh, opinion about but they don't feel certainly not for 97 percent of the the business owners and entrepreneurs that i speak to they don't feel like they're on your doorstep they feel quite far away and so we have the luxury of supposing or imagining as, as we've just mentioned the unique opportunity i guess now and i, I want to be careful about being flippant about the severity of the situation that we're in but the unique moment that we're in right now is is we have a global unified attention directed at this one adverse enemy this one force and that's not to suggest that ai is an example is an enemy but you know what i mean yeah. and um and that's forcing that imagined part of the conversation to happen a lot quicker is the difference here and in this moment just the accelerated time frame of this thing or is there something else going on that is that is forcing leaders to think very differently in this moment in time I think there's two things going on. I think one is the accelerated time frame and I have to do something now. Uh, yes. And I have to make decisions now. That's yes. one side of it. But the other side of it is leaders now have skin in the game. Yes. And in a lot of cases, there's there's not skin in the game. So c climate change for many people, I, I'm not seeing the real effects of it day in, day out. We've had a horrendous wildfire and bushfire season in Australia, particularly the southeastern yes. corner. But one of the things that's being said, and that's a good example of climate change, and I won't say cause, but contributing to. Yes. But now we've got COVID-19. People have already forgot about that. So yeah, come next fire incredible season, how quickly, yeah. it'll be like, oh, wow, oh, something like this happened last year. Yeah, I remember now. It's, it's how you keep people thinking about that and having themselves in that picture. And that's the hard part for a lot of people. So those wildfires were horrendous for the people involved in them. I live in Victoria. We had bad fires. They didn't affect me yes. personally. Uh, I didn't know anybody yes. who was directly af affected by them as a, other, other than those managing the emergency events. Yes. I've seen bad fires before, so I've got an idea of what they're like. But day in, day out, it was not a major concern. My life pretty much went on as it normally would. So if you yes. take a business leader and you show them this is what's happening in the Pacific or this is what's happening in the Maldives or this is what's happening in Bangladesh, uh, that, that's nice, but it's not affecting me day in, day out. So I, th I think there's a piece there about getting them to think about what, what does this mean for me and how does it affect me? Yes. And Yuval Harara in his book, Sapiens, makes the comment, there are really only two types of people in the world, people who are like me and people who aren't. And uh, people who are like me I'm really interested in because they represent who I am and that could affect me. People who yes. aren't like me, doesn't mean I don't have empathy for their position and I can't understand what that may mean for them. 
but it's not as personal as when I see somebody who's just like me go through a bad experience. I think about some of my older colleagues who have had friends who have had a heart attack and that's the seminal moment for them to change their diet, change their exercise regime because mm. that person's just like me. But they knew what the hardest, the, their risk of heart attack hasn't gone up or down as a result of that person having a heart attack, but it's suddenly very personal. And I think there's a, there's a piece there for how do we make these things personal. And that's one of the interesting things about this particular disease and pandemic and the underlying dynamic of digital media that is supporting the transfer of information around it is that unlike previous pandemics, there is a sense that I am deeply concerned or at the very least interested in what is happening to people who are not like me so that I could better understand what will happen to people like me. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, whether I'm talking about it on a global level, or even on a, uh, a national level, we are, let me use the example in South Africa, uh, even the most uh, zealous capitalist is concerned about what's happening in, in communities that are disenfranchised and disempowered related to this disease because they understand in this complex system that those disaffected communities and, and the impact of the virus on them could have a monumental impact on our economy as, as a second and third effect. That is of primary concern to them. But now normally we would go about our business not necessarily all that concerned about the well-being of those who aren't like us, aren't in our demographic or, or live in another, another country. Is that what is happening here? I, th I think so, and I think there's a couple of things at, at play. One is for many people in the Western world, the, the developed world, although I don't like using that term, uh, but I think it's easy for most people to, to see where I'm coming from. The use yeah. of inoculations, vaccines, have successfully managed to allow certain groups not to get sick, so they're not worried about these illnesses anymore. Yes. We don't have a vaccine for this. This could affect anybody regardless of age, race, gender, where you live, who you live with, what country you're in, how, how rich, how poor, how much the system benefits you, how disenfranchised you are. This is a systemic mm. risk to all humans. And we're not used to mm. thinking in mm. terms of systemic risk. We're used to thinking in a much smaller level of risk. Climate change is another systemic risk. And I think there's a possibility, although I won't say it's probable, but I'll say it's possible that what we start to see out of this is people start to think in a much broader, what are those wider risks to the system of which I am part and how may that yes. affect me? And the question then becomes, how may that affect me at a personal level? And I was doing a, a project with a organisation in Europe and the comment from the people we were presenting to we're a very well-developed country. We're not worried about a lot of the cyber issues. Our people understand that technology is a potential threat to them. I don't know that this is an area that we need to discuss. Yes. And I yes. said to this gentleman, I want you to think about yourself in 20 years' time. I said, how old will you be? He said, well, yeah, I'll be around about 68 to 70. I said, okay. Mm. I said, uh, do you have children? He said, yeah, I've got two. I've got a son and a daughter. I said, do you think they might get married at some time? He said, well, yes. So I've got really bad news for you. 
unfortunately, you've gone deaf and you can't hear. Mm. So you're going to go to your daughter's wedding and give the bride away and you're not going to be able to hear anything that's said. Think about that and how does that make you feel? And he thought about it. He said, well, no, I wouldn't be happy about it. He said, now, here's the good news. There's a new bionic hearing aid that I can give you, simple operation, very little risk to you. you know, it's no different to having an appendix out. Uh, and it will give you perfect hearing again. And one of the benefits is this, is because it's plugged into the internet, I'm going to be able to update the software. You'll always have the latest, most up-to-date software. It'll keep you hearing well into your 80s. So mm. Based on that, nothing else, would you, t- would you take the operation? He said, yeah, of course I would. He said, why wouldn't I? I said, okay, you now realize that you can be tracked anywhere you go, including by criminals who hack the system and they know when you're out of your house and can rob you. And he, he looked at me and, oh, I hadn't thought of that, but you've just been telling me how you're all across the internet of things. I said, but you've seen an instant pro- solution to a problem. You haven't thought through what all the other things are. And the purpose of this isn't to demonstrate that you hadn't thought through that. The purpose of this is to demonstrate there's going to be a whole heap of people that think like that because these are basic human drivers. And that really opened up the opportunity to say, when it's a deeply personal matter, you may not be thinking about the cybersecurity effects of it. And yes. you may not be thinking yeah. about what that means because what you're thinking about, what does this mean to me? It means I can hear. I'm not thinking about somebody in another country cyber hacking my hearing aid and then communicating to someone else to come and rob my house. Yes. Yeah, there's different parts of the brain, I guess, that we're using for those two tasks, aren't we? Very much so. It's this whole idea of domain specificity where you've got people that uh, I spend a lot of my time in the risk space, but I still make mistakes about risk because when I'm at work, I think about it one way. When I come home, I'm in a different setting. You've got different drivers, very different drivers. And the way you behave to protect your children and your family is very different because it's very personal. Yes, absolutely. And, and, And very emotive. Yes, obviously. Not that that's a bad thing, but that is just what it is. It's a deeply emotional decision-making process. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. I want to make an attempt very quickly at a possibly irresponsibly simplistic illustration, thought experiment, that compares climate change, and I'm using that phrase very specifically here because I am not and do not want to come across as a a climate emergency activist. I do believe we have to be preoccupied with changes in climate, but I believe we act very poorly around it because of the time frame and some of the, the, the uh, realities you spoke about around the closeness, the, skin in, the level of skin in the game we have around the topic. Um, I want to I go through the thought experiment of suggesting that we shouldn't differentiate between things like COVID-19 right now, this accelerated moment in time, this global trauma 
around this disease and the impact it's, it's having on people and on systems and then as a byproduct on ourselves and things like climate change, the only difference between those two things, the only variable that's different is time frame. So if we took a 50-year look at climate change and we worked our way back and we did the numbers, we would say, this is going to have as much, if not more, a catastrophic impact on people's well-being, on economies, on societies. And the difference is that unlike COVID-19, which is because of its immediacy and because of its accelerated timeframe, forcing us to act quicker, the slower timeframe means that we act less deliberately and less consideredly. I don't think consideredly is a word, but in a less considered way. And if we, if we were able to, if we had the will to apply longer timeframes to these macro forces, we would realize that it's not worth differentiating the amount of thought and effort we allocate to them. Is that a, is that a worthwhile illustration or am I overly simplifying the situation? I think it's definitely a worthwhile consideration. Climate change at the moment isn't in our face. COVID-19 is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, we're in lockdown in Australia. I think you're in lockdown in, in South Africa. I'm feeling the effects of COVID-19 because I'm locked into my house. Uh, and yes. that's having an immediate impact on what I can and can't do and ha- how I live my life. Yes. Next summer, I may or may not get a heat wave. If I do, it might last seven days. That'll be uncomfortable. I'll get air conditioning. I'll be all right. But it's not in your face climate change. I think if we yes. can find a way of putting that into people really in your face – uh, and it's something that you've got to deal with now. And th- this is what some low-lying countries are seeing or, or those that are actually below sea level in some cases. For them, this, yes. this isn't a 50-year issue. It's, la- it's literally lapping at their doorstep today and will lap it yes. again at the next king tide they have. For them, this is a really real, in their face, I've got to deal with this, this now. The, not only with, will it be at my door stop tomorrow but in 10 years time it might be my windows i won't be able to live in my house so it's it's how do we get that to key decision makers who are looking at and saying well this is not something i have to deal with day in day out and it's certainly a piece that you're hearing from from the pacific islands where you do have key decision makers that this is on their doorstep as opposed to other countries where it's not on their doorstep they've got other issues that they need to deal with right now and I, i think in a broader business and decision-making sense, it's that balance between dealing with what's important and what's urgent. And we've got things that are on our plate, that are hammering our email, coming in on our, our new virtual ways of working, texts, mobile phones, oh, I've got to deal with this person now, squeaky wheel syndrome. But there are other mm-hmm. things that are far more important that you should probably be working on. I was interested to watch the series of viral videos that did the rounds a couple of couple of days ago of Italians, citizens in Italy, that were recording, they were recording videos uh, to their ten day ago self, <laughs> a message to me, but from ten days ago. I don't know if you saw those. I haven't seen them. 
So there were a series of videos essentially where, where Italians were sending a message to themselves 10 days ago with the intention of other people watching those videos and applying the same thinking in terms of their personal decisions around social distancing and isolation right now and saying how they wished that themselves just 10 days ago had thought differently about the critical nature of the situation they were in, which is a very powerful way to communicate the importance of the time frame uh, to people who were in areas that were less affected at that point in time, but that were on the same trajectory. Now, I wonder how powerful, you know, for, for leaders, business leaders, uh, the experiment of what what the thought experiment of what might my 10-year version of myself say in a video back to me today along the same lines. And, I, and this is the difficulty, though, uh, Andrew, is that what is so interesting about this moment is how we're able to think in complexity because of the limited timeframes. It, it seems to be so difficult for people, ordinary human beings, and especially uh, those in in you know, powerful decision-making positions to think in longer terms. We don't incentivize or measure in, in longer-term timeframes, but it's becoming increasingly critical that we do. How do you help people think in decade-long timeframes? Again, I'd say that we have a – I know it's the case in Australia, I know it's the case in Europe, and for that matter, the States – where our business cycles are now, we're, we're reporting quarterly and people yes. get their bonuses, they get hired and fired on their quarterly results. Yes. So systemically, we need to find a way of moving that. Um, one of my observations around COVID-19 as well is the media has done an excellent job of training us to think in sound bites. So when yes. a political leader turns around and says, I, ha I now have a complicated thing to tell you or a complex thing to tell you, the answer is, well, can you give that to me in a 15-second soundbite or can you do it in a tweet? Yeah. And I, I, I think back to listening to some of the speeches, obviously not live at the time, of Winston Churchill, and they were long speeches. They were inspiring speeches. But he wasn't giving 15-second sound bites and he wasn't trying to nut it down to 140 characters. So there's, there's a piece there about how we educate people to think in a slightly long, in, well, significantly longer term. And the idea of doing a video of myself now and saying, this is what I think today, and then you, it actually holds you to account. And we look at a lot of people who are giving us predictions and forecasts and they say, oh, the economy could go up by 3 or 4%. And when you say to them, well, mm. it actually went backwards, it's, well, I said it could yes. and it was three or four and they're not giving you, it will go up by 3% for these reasons in this month. And a lot of the predictors, they're, just, they're basically crystal balling. And Philip Tetlock mm. in his book on super forecasters talks about seriously holding people to account on a particular day and saying, on this day, this is what I thought. I got new information three days later and I revised my thinking. Now this is what I thought. A week later, I get another set of information. I've revised my thinking again. And it helps hold them to account. The challenge is to get senior decision makers to become quite reflective about the way they're making their decisions to say, tie it down in black and white or on a sound recording or do a video capture on your phone. 
on the 1st of March, this is what I thought. I got more information. This is what I thought on the 5th of March. Uh, mm. And one of the challenges with COVID is just that exponential side of things where we think in a yes. very linear one, two, three. We're not used to thinking in terms of one, two, four, eight, 16, you know, the, the idea of the exponential yeah. curve. So it's getting people to think around these areas. Now, I would suggest, and this probably indicates, well, it's a reflection of my own bias. I don't struggle with leaders when I have to discuss this with them. What I struggle with is managers who want to wear the cloak of leadership. Hmm. And and for me, that's a it's a, it's a pretty interesting situation we're in at the moment to look at those that are happy to say, I'm making decisions and yes, I will be held accountable for them. Mm. As opposed to people who are used to saying, I'm used to making decisions, but I don't want to be held accountable for them. Yes. And I I see that in a lot of places. As a young junior officer, it was often pointed out to me by choosing to be an officer, you're basically telling other people, I want the buck to stop with me. I don't want all the problems to land on my doorstep every morning as opposed to people that are, I guess, getting the pay grade, making the decisions, but don't want to be held to account later on. Yeah. No, hierarchies are a deeply primal and natural instinctive structure for us, but are so damaging when they only relate to power and so powerful and enabling when they relate to accountability. (laughs) And, there's a gentleman by the name of Matthew Saeed, I think I've got his name correct, who's just released a book called Rebel Ideas. And he talks about this idea of hierarchy and he talks about the dominance hierarchy where it's you know, basically sheer strength. You're, the, you're, you're there by force. You, you, can afford, you can rule by fear because you can. Then there's the yeah. prestige hierarchy. You rule because people respect you. They think you know what you're talking about. You look after people. You've got something to offer and you get – you get your place in the hierarchy through prestige. And that, hmm. that's, so you've, and he, he talks about how this has been seen in you know, humanity's history that you might be the, the expert on making canoes or the export boat maker or the axe maker or the sword maker or, or the builder or whatever it is. And because that's your thing, and people know that if they want anything in that space, they come to you. That's a very different form of leadership and hierarchy and and power base than somebody who I'm just bigger than everyone else and I can force this on you. I think one of the – and I know you have a a very realistic and well-researched set of concerns about um, digital privacy and identity, and I would love to open up that conversation in detail with you if if you ever afford me the opportunity to chat to you again. but I've been thinking quite a lot about how, as much as they are um, threats to our, the, you know, the protection of our identity and our data and, and our, the quality of our thinking, social networks have the power to show us quite, quite clearly how we behaved and how we thought 10 years ago. We've, we've been playing with them long enough now to have a sense of who we were back then. And, and I wonder how useful it could be to spend a bit of time <laughs> examining Mike of 10 years ago and getting a sense of what his priorities were and what he spoke about and what he was interested in. And then extrapolating that again 10 years forward and going, how different could it be? In my case, it would be very different. And, and there is... 
it's a worthwhile exercise. It's a, a worthwhile moment of mental yoga to imagine what I might be preoccupied with or, or interested in in 2030. And and I suppose for all their failings, they you know these platforms do offer us that that one piece of insight. Uh, look, I think that's a really good example how uh, on those social media platforms that you, you you've made a comment and then you come back five years later and you go, uh, with the, with the wisdom of hindsight, <laughs> that may not have been <laughs> such a good comment or it might not have been such a good idea to put that photograph on on Facebook or, or whatever platform you're using. 10 years ago, yes. five years ago, and eventually it will be 20 years ago. Or it might not have been such a good idea to put that on Instagram because now everybody knows I was doing the wrong thing or the right thing or whatever it happens to be. And we're very good at telling our own stories about what I was like. And yes. I think for people who have become parent, as a parent, and I became one late in life, you do change your views. I've become far more tolerant of children than I ever was before I had. <laughs> before. Although lockdown could change that, right? Absolutely. No problem whatsoever. And I, I find that an interesting observation. And uh, you know, there's a bumper sticker that I've seen, hire a teenager while I still know everything. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's that as you grow with knowledge, and nowadays we have so much access to so much knowledge, um, I think one of the key things to helping people move forward with understanding the world that we live in and what it might mean for them is not so much the availability of information, but actually being able to think about the information. Where's the critical thinking that people are going through? Mm. Yes. And I think with some of these social media platforms, when you, when you look back five years, you might be very critical <laughs> of yes. what it was that you put on there. But it's that once upon a time, people wrote diaries you know, over five, ten years about this is what I was thinking, this is where I was going. A lot of those things have disappeared over time. And it's easy to say that's because of modern technology. I think it was because of a whole heap of things uh, that we've, sure. we, we don't have the time to reflect that we once did. I want to thank you, first of all, for, for your insights and wisdom. But I also want to, before I let you go, still a little bit more, especially for those people who have listened with intrigue to some of the ideas around embracing and thinking through complexity. If you had to recommend two or three nuggets of wisdom that people who want to dive a little deeper into the world of uncertainty and complexity and specifically leading in those contexts, what would you suggest or where, would, where should they start if they want to spend a little bit more time educating themselves on these topics? So I, th I think if you want a really short, sharp introduction to complexity, the Harvard Business Review article written by David Snowden, who developed the Kinevin framework. Yes. Uh, it's a few pages long like most HBR articles are. That's a great place to start. Uh, he also does cool. a fantastic YouTube as well. So if you just type in... Uh, Dave, Dave, David Snowden, Kinevin, which is C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. Uh, yeah. Great introduction to uh, complexity. There's Super. a new book out. I can't remember the author's name, but it's called Uncharted. And uh, it's uh, – she's only released it in the last couple of months. 
where she talks about what uncertainty means. And I, okay. I always find it interesting when we talk about uncertainty and people say to me, oh, you know, uncertainty makes me so uncomfortable, I'm not sure, I don't know, I'm, where, where do I go with this next? I often say to people, do you have a favourite movie franchise? Like Star mm. Wars, James Bond, I, I like James Bond. Oh, yeah, I like Star Wars or, or whatever it is, Harry Potter. So, so imagine mm. there was a new Star Wars movie coming out. Yeah, yeah, okay, got that. And I'd seen it. Do you want me to tell you what happens? Oh, no, I want to know the end. I want to go and see it. I want to experience it. Well, you're quite happy to be <laughs> yes. uncertain about the ending. You're quite happy to go to a thriller or a, or a horror movie and be uncertain about the ending. You, we go to football matches with, with whatever code so that we can be thrilled by what's happening. So on yeah. one hand, humans quite like uncertainty. On, other hand, on another hand, they don't like it quite so much. And I often make the comment that uncertainty is a lot like change. We're all relatively happy to change for the right reasons. What we don't like is having change imposed on us. And we yeah. don't like having yeah. uncertainty imposed on us. And yes. one of the reasons that I'm so fanatical, and that's an appropriate word, about learning and, and new learning opportunities, whether it's reading a book, listening to a podcast, uh, going doing a formal qualification, going on a two-day course, is it teaches us new ways to think and adapt to different environments. Yeah. And I talk to people a lot about this is just adapting your life. Uh, if you've got married, if you've had kids, if you've got a new job, if you've left a new job, we always find a way to adapt. Humans are very adaptable animals and we're normally quite happy to adapt as long as that is not being shoved upon us. And it's it's the same in the, the broader risk space. People who go hang gliding or parachuting, which in my mind are fairly hazardous activities, will do that quite happily on the weekend and then complain that somebody's put a power cord across the corridor and it's a trip hazard. One's one that they're embracing. This is mine. I own it. The other one is just one that's been forced on them. And humans don't like being forced much. Mm -hmm. Well, Andrew, you've certainly given me a heightened appetite and appreciation for, for uncertainty. And I'm sure listeners feel very much the same way. And I, I want to thank you for, your, uh, for being so generous with your time. If people do want to reach out to you on a professional basis, uh, is LinkedIn a good place to do that? Yeah, that's the best place. Super duper. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you the best of luck over the next uh, couple of weeks there in Southeast Australia. And, uh, and yes, just a, a deep sense of appreciation for, for your time and wisdom. Thank you. Mike, thank you very much for the opportunity. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.